so let's, let's come before the Lord in prayer, and then we'll uh, turn our attention to uh, his holy word. Let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, uh, the Lord God most high, we come before your holy presence this morning to worship you. We thank you for your steadfast love and mercy that we don't deserve, and we thank you for blessing us with a day of rest. Uh, Father, we humbly ask that you feed us with your sacred word and quench our thirst in Christ alone. Uh, Holy Spirit, set our hearts aflame in the hearing of your word. Reveal Christ in his radiant glory and sanctify your people in full obedience to the testimony of Christ. Set our feet upon the firm foundation of Christ that we may not slip into temptation and sin, but that we may grow in union with our dear Savior. Lord Jesus, we may you grace us with your precious presence this morning, preparing our hearts to know you more fully and love you more dearly. Amen. Uh, let's now read the words of the prophecy of this book that we call the Revelation of Jesus Christ, turning to chapter 22, verse 6 through 21. That's the last page of the Bible there, if you're not aware. Uh, it's on page 1235. If you've gone to the Weights and Measures, you've gone too far. This book is written by the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, as well as three other short letters in the New Testament. Uh, one of Jesus' disciples. And this passage that he brings to us is uh, it brings the canon of Scripture to a close, uh, as well as the last book of Scripture to a close. And now, let's hear what God has to say to us from his word. Starting with verse 6. And he said to me, that's one of the seven angels that had the seven bowls of God's wrath in a uh, previous chapter. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come! And let the one who hears say, Come! And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to, the, uh, to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of 
the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, or all the saints. Amen. Some of you may know that uh, I'm an English teacher, and so I'm going to be putting on my teaching hat today. Um, and as an te- English teacher, I uh, use the Illinois Learning Standards. I teach in that faraway state, Illinois. I use the Illinois Learning Standards to write learning objectives for my students when it comes to uh, reading skills, or reading comprehension skills that I want them to develop. Uh, and so one of those learning objectives that I use to focus uh, on for my students is one that focuses on how authors use various choices for their structure, the craft and structure of their writing, uh, in order to understand the meaning of the text uh, much better. Uh, The choices that they make contribute to the overall structure and the meaning uh, as well. And so knowing how a text is purposefully structured goes a long way in its meaning and its purpose. And so an excellent example of this that I like to use um, in my class is I teach To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Some of you may be familiar with that classic novel. Um, And so in that novel, at the very beginning, the narrator, uh, Scout Finch, she's an adult reminiscing on a childhood memory that she had, uh, which is actually the whole story. The story is their memory, her memory as a child. Uh, And at the very beginning, she has an argument with her brother, Jem, about how all those events in the novel actually started. And so they bicker about what actually started it. Was it uh, Bob Ewell and his family? Was that what started it? And Scout says, well, maybe it was actually uh, Andrew Jackson back in the South. And so they have this argument about where the events actually took place. Uh, How did they start? And so eventually they come to the end of this novel. I tell my students to look back at the beginning. Uh, Jem had had his arm broken by Bob Ewell, uh, who was uh, offended by Atticus Finch, who defeated him in court, or at least humiliated him in court. And so that ending actually points back to the middle. And the beginning actually points to the middle of the text as well. You see that what they're arguing about really is the central theme of the whole novel is this idea of prejudice and racism in, um, in the Jim Crow era south of Alabama in the 1930s. And so Tom Robinson was unlawfully tried and unlawfully convicted, and all of those events spill out of that central focus. And so knowing the beginning and the ending points us back to the middle and the central theme of that novel. And so likewise, knowing the textual structure of each book of the Bible, let alone Revelation, is actually highly important to understanding its meaning and purpose that God sets forth through the human pens uh, who are his instruments for this revelation. And so Revelation itself is actually no exception to that interpretive rule. And so through Revelation, uh, as we'll see in chapter 22, verse 6 through 21, uh, John uses a literary form of structure called a chiasm. I'm going to be throwing a lot of Greek terms at you today, but uh, bear with me. He uses what's called a chiasm, uh, in which he essentially uh, parallels ideas in a cross-section to point his audience to his main point, his emphasis, the center of his message. And so we'll see in verses 6 through 7, they parallel verses 20 through 21. And these are promises and a blessing to those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep them. Uh, Then in verses 8 through 16, there's a parallel with verses 18 through 19, that those are warnings to those who hear the words of this prophecy. And at the very center of this chiasm, this cross-section, the focus in the very center is verse 17, and that is an appeal to those who are thirsty. 
This central appeal is what John emboldens for the church to focus on in light of the promises and blessings and warnings to come to Christ for salvation, for he is coming soon. So, bookending the final verses of the prophecy of Revelation, we receive a word of encouragement, a promise, and a blessing. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So, however, what I hear most often when it comes to Revelation as a whole is that it is such a divine mystery uh, and it's too enigmatic that it's no benefit to the church. We shouldn't really deal with Revelation. It's very murky and it's hard to interpret. Uh, And while it's true that there are certain mysteries that are hard to understand in Revelation uh, with uh, interpretations, many interpretations about certain details and events, We cannot be so evasive in reading and interpreting this book that we're dogmatically avoiding it altogether. We should be reading from Revelation as the body of Christ and our own personal studies. It is a book of blessing for the church. It's a book of blessed hope. And so another thing that I often hear is that Revelation is a scary book uh, of the Bible. Uh, There's a lot of things uh, in there that uh, fill us with dread and um, fear because of the future events that it's describing. And I'm guilty of that sort of attitude, too, for many years of my life. I was avoiding it like the plague. Um, but I, I, think what we, I think we also have hushed tones about this apocalyptic text. Uh, and we may even bristle when we see it listed on the bulletin for the day's sermon. Uh, but apocalypse, this apocalypse is, simply means in the Greek revelation or uncovering in its Greek origin. And so I think we can candidly approach this apocalyptic book with confidence and courage. Verse 7 of chapter 22 recalls the opening verses of Revelation, where we're told that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the whole purpose of Revelation, that the saints in Christ who read and hear and obey these words would be blessed and would have hope in the return of their Savior. These words are shown for Christ's servants, John the eyewitnesses of these things, and we all who keep the words of this book. It's a book of blessing and hope and encouragement. Furthermore, it's clear from Revelation that John is a prophet inspired by the Lord God, the Spirit of the prophets. And that as trustworthy and true as the God of creation is, so too are the words of this prophecy trustworthy and and true. What the angel has shown to John in previous chapters is God's own revelation to his servants, including the angels. Jesus, who testifies to these things, sent his angel himself to testify of himself. John tells us in chapter 19, verse 10, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's the whole point and purpose, is an unveiling and revealing of Christ and his glory. That is why revelation is called the revelation of Jesus Christ, It is all about him and unveiling the spiritual realities of how people deal with him, either in obedient faith or condemned in unrepentant unbelief. What's more, we can trust that the Lord Jesus, to be faithful to his promises, he makes in this book. But the question I need to ask as we unpack this passage is, what promise does Jesus make in the conclusion of this book? He makes a promise that encompasses all of his promises throughout Revelation. In verse 7 and again in verse 20, Jesus makes a very clear promise that he, just as he ascended into heaven after the resurrection, he will absolutely return again. 
in his return, it will not merely be uh, that he dwells in our hearts, though that is certainly true. He dwells in our hearts now. He promises that he'll be with us certainly to the end of the age. Uh, his return is not a simple spirit of Christ-like love that increases on the earth, as some might assert. No, he will return dramatically, suddenly, visibly, personally, and gloriously. That is what he promises. It will be just as the angels of Acts 1 declared to the witness of the ascension, in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's how he's going to be coming back, in full, radiant, apparent glory. And that's why the living one's appearance will be so obvious and glorious that Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 27, it will be like the flashing of lightning across the sky. It's not going to be quiet and hidden in a corner. It will be obvious and apparent and visible and glorious. And he will return with reward and judgment, and he will make all things new for his church. That is what we can look forward to in his promises. And so not only is Jesus going to really visibly, gloriously, and obviously return from heaven, he promises that it will be soon, quickly, suddenly, without delay. He says in verse 10, the time is near. The Greek term typically used for standard progression of time is uh, chronos. That's where we get the word chronology from. It's this day-to-day, moment-by-moment passing of time. But the word used here is kairos. And kairos actually has a much heavier meaning. Uh, Kairos means uh, a fixed, definite, and historic time. The difference is that kairos is a world-changing, paradigm-shifting moment in history. Uh, For example... The development of the atomic bomb was a chirotic moment in history. It changed world history in the 20th century. Making coffee this morning was chronological, to make the comparison. So the kairos of Jesus' return will be ultimate world-changing moment in history, the ultimate world-changing moment in history. And this return of Christ is not just something that takes place in the long-distant future, but is identified with the Greek word that is used for near, that is to throttle or squeeze. Uh, To use a crude image, it's like squeezing out the last bit of toothpaste out of a toothpaste bottle. And so we can render that verse 10 as, for the world-changing moment is being throttled out of history, squeezed out of history. It's not something that's taking place in the far distant future. It is evidently here soon, quickly, nearby. And though his return is positively imminent, uh, R.C. Sproul comments in his systematic theology that, No one knows for sure when Jesus is going to come. Nevertheless, we, the people of God, have a blessed hope and every reason to believe in the integrity of Jesus' word. His promises are without fail, and we look forward to his personal, visible, and glorious return. Our blessing further comes from keeping the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus says, blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. And this keeping is like a guarding a preserving, a watching over the word of God, which is expounded in the warnings of verses 18 through 19, but we'll get to that later. Uh, but keeping these words and commands encompasses a faith that is in action. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us uh, in his letter to the churches, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Uh, these works are not just are not justifying in and of themselves, but they are the fruit of justifying faith. They are evidence of justifying faith. 
Living obediently according to the Spirit is outward evidence of that, and thus it is not only those who exercise a living, it is only those who exercise a living faith that are blessed in Christ. A living faith, not a dead, I'm here for Sunday worship kind of faith. It is a faith that is in action, evidenced by obedience to the commands of our King. Ultimately, Christ brings a gracious word for his people at the end of Revelation as well. Uh, he's the righteous judge, but in uh, 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul makes a note that uh, there's a crown of righteousness for the faithful who love and look forward to Christ's second coming. There's a crown of righteousness for those kind of faithful followers of Christ. There's a blessing in that. And we must keep his word, remembering that his return is so imminent and that he will judge those who practice what is false and wicked. It is a beautiful thing that the last book of the canon of Scripture begins, expounds, and ends with the blessing of grace from the Lord Jesus for all the saints, his people. Uh, I, I read through Revelation with my students last semester uh, as our uh, daily devotions, and at the very end, when we finished Revelation 22, it said, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. One of my students sitting right next to me said, the Bible ends with amen? And I said, yes. He's like, that's cool. Yeah, it is. It is true. Amen means it is true. All of these things are true. These blessings and promises are true. And the grace that Christ gives to us is true and trustworthy as he who sits on the throne is trustworthy and true. Amen? Amen. Get a little charismatic in here today. All right. (laughs) So let's turn our attention to the warnings. Now that we've gotten those blessings out of the way, let's look at the warnings in verses 8 through 16 and 18 through 19. Now I'll take some time to unpack those. We won't reread them specifically. Uh, But when John, uh, who heard and saw the visions, Jesus gave the angel to show him and also in turn to us, this is for us too, John himself, he fell down and worshipped the agent of revelation. There's a danger there. There's a warning there. The warning is pretty clear. Angels, including the devil, and humans are created beings, and our worship must be reserved for the Creator and the Creator alone. Anything but worship of God is idolatry. The temptation for John the second time since chapter 19, verse 10, this is the second time he did this, and the second time he was rebuked. it It was a worship of the messenger, of the glorious, trustworthy, and awesome words of God. We must not revere our pastors and ministers and those who preach the word even so much to the degree that we bow down and worship to them. We might not, you know, get on our hands and knees and kiss the rings, but it's, it's this active devotion to those who deliver God's message. We shouldn't worship them either. There's a call to fidelity in our worship. God alone must be worshipped. That is part and parcel of the message of all of Scripture. God alone is to be worshipped because God alone is worthy to be worshipped. So the reproof of the angel is actually quite strong too, the language that's used here. When, John, or when he tells John that he must not do that, he's denying the very thought, the very thought of worshipping anything or anyone other than the God of creation according to the judgment and will of God. Don't even think about that. In other words, God forbid you even think of worshipping me, a mere creature, in Romans 1, Paul tells us that the wrath of God is kindled against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. 
Quote, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In our fallen nature, that is our initial response is to worship the creation rather than the creator. That is the charge that Paul lays before us and why we need the gospel. So John is rebuked a second time, called to repentance and to worship the creator faithfully. After instructing John to reveal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near, the last stage of Jesus' conquest of death and evil being definite and imminent, he provides additional warnings about the spiritual realities of the kingdom come, this side of kingdom come. He instructs, in verse 11, Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still do be holy. This sounds like a hard saying, and it is. Let these words sink deeply into our hearts. Truthfully, Paul helps to illuminate what Jesus is warning us of here. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, A life of lawlessness leads to more lawlessness, and the fruit of that, such unrepentant life, is ultimately death. Whereas the life of righteousness leads to sanctification, holiness, growth in holiness, and its fruit is eternal life. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, I think Warren Wearsby makes an interesting comment about this too. He says, It is worth living a godly life because Christ is coming soon. We must be found living according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh and its sinful desires. When the Lord returns again, let us be found living according to the Spirit. And as surely as Christ returns, it will be to repay and to reward justly. Let's keep that in mind as well. That turns our attention to verse 12. Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. God knows our labors of love, our suffering, and he will meet us to reward us and dwell with us forever in eternal bliss in the new Jerusalem. The ultimate reward is intimate union with Christ forever. Uh, however, God knows our suffering, and we don't serve him vainly. He brings justice even for the martyred saints who cry out for justice in Revelation 6. It says, They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were being killed as they themselves had been. God answers this by the declaration of an angel in chapter 16, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve." And just as deserving, at the end of the visions of Jesus' return in chapter 20, books are opened to judge the living and the dead, the quick and the dead. These are books of deeds. All of our deeds are recorded in these books. Every single one of them, every careless word that we speak, every careless thought, these are recorded in these volumes and volumes and volumes of all of our life, opened up before the holy, righteous, true judge. There's also the book of life. But all are judged, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's all that qualifies us for salvation, is that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And if it's not written in that book, we are cast into the lake of fire. 
I think earlier in the service, we heard that if we were to look at the Ten Commandments, we'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who is righteous. All of us are fallen. All of us are unrighteous in and of ourselves. And so, the wicked receive exactly what they deserve. There is judgment for the faithless. God preserves the sanctity of the new Jerusalem by barring all evil and evildoers from it. That's a blessing too, I think, but there's also a warning there. From verse 15 of chapter 22, this is not a comprehensive list of sins that bar one from glory, but are noted as works of the flesh, not the spirit. Outside, that is outside of this holy city, are dogs, the dogs, the unclean ones, and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Paul warns us in Galatians 5 verse 21, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no fruit of justifying faith in them, and only those who are counted as righteous will enter through the gate of the holy city. There is no injustice in God. Can I say that again? There is no injustice in God. Every one of us will receive exactly what we deserve unless we receive mercy, which is not what we deserve. This is all what we deserve is judgment. And we would rightly receive it too if it were not for the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross on our behalf. Thus, uh, from Revelation 22, verse 14, it is only those whose robes are washed in the sacred blood of Christ who may partake in eternal life and dwell securely in the new Jerusalem. That's the qualifier. Our robes, our dirty, unclean robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. We may only enter this holy city by uh, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the white robe we receive that replaces our dirty rags of the sin nature. In fact, we are so utterly dependent on Christ for life and righteousness that we must not forget that it is Jesus who is, verse 13 of 22, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Notably, the Alpha and the Omega are the bookends of the Greek alphabet. When Christ claims that he is the Alpha, he's claiming that he is the creator alone to be worshipped. The same John who wrote Revelation said in his gospel, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He is therefore the root of David as the divine maker of all things. And this word of God who made the heavens and the earth in the beginning is also the omega who brings forth the new heavens and the new earth in its close of the old. Jesus is the bookends of all history, the creation and the end of creation and the new creation and the new heavens. Moreover, Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, that's verse 13 again, who is not only the creator of all things, but is the first fruits of all creation and the one who finishes what he started in redemptive history. He is the supreme ruler of all things and is... Uh, and is the purpose, the purpose of all history. Let us be warned not to center, uh, to be the center of human history. We're not the center of human history. Nor was Caesar. The Roman Empire was not the center of human history. Nor is the United States. And we live in a great country, and it is a privilege and a blessing to be here. But the United States is not the end-all, be-all of history. Nations will come and nations will go. Nations are a drop in a bucket to the Lord. He's the one that raises nations up and tears them down. Our nation is not the end-all, be-all of history. 
Christ is. World history turns for the glory of Christ, not mankind. So we get the word prototype from the Greek word uh, for first order or importance, that is protos. After the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, God proclaimed what theologians call the proto-evangelion, or the first gospel. God curses Satan in that moment and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is nothing less than the first pronouncement of the gospel where God promises to deliver his people through a promised descendant of the woman. Jesus is that human descendant of Eve, and later Abraham, and much later David. We have that here in our passage as well. It's in verse 16. That ancient serpent's head was crushed at the cross and at the resurrection and is shown to be hurled into the lake of fire in Revelation. Jesus is also the first fruits of the resurrection for his people. From 1 Corinthians 15, For all in Adam die, so also in Christ shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. As surely as Christ was resurrected, so will all those who belong to Christ when he comes again. That's us. We will follow his footsteps in the resurrection as well. That is why we look forward to his resurrection, or to his second coming. It's part of the resurrection. We are partakers in that. And we will share in his resurrection, being the first. Christ will faithfully finish what he and the Father started before the world began. Christ is the end of all things, as much as he is the first. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God and the Father, of the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. A particular branch of theology is concerned with studying the end times. That is what Revelation particularly entail, entails, and that is called eschatology, for big fancy words. Uh, we've been engaged in exet, exet, uh, eschatology since the beginning of this message. The root word of eschatology is the Greek eschatos which means the superlative or final place uh, or time, the final time. And Jesus claims here in this passage to be the eschatos. So any engagement and study of eschatology must have its bent and focus on who? Christ, the eschatos, the subject of our study. Satan is not the eschatos. Humanity is not the eschatos. Christ is the eschatos. He is the one who brings history to a close for the glory of the Father, subjects all things to the Father's will and authority and rule. Finally, Christ asserts that he is the beginning and the end. Uh, whenever the Cubs play the Cardinals, we would typically call them arch rivals, right? Uh, we got some sports fans in here, perhaps. Um, maybe the Sox, if you're a Sox fan, or Bears, if you're a Bears fan. They've got the arch rivals of the Green Bay Packers, right? I'm not really into sports, but I at least know that much. Um, or perhaps... Uh, in terms of superheroes, the Joker is Batman's arch nemesis, right? Uh, the key root in both of those terms is arch, or in the Greek, arche, which means original, ruler, power, magistrate. And so the ruling powerful rivalry of the Cubs is the Cardinals. The ruling original enemy of Batman is the Joker, to use some crude images once again. So Christ, uh, the word of Christ, uses himself as the beginning is arche, he is the originator of all things, the ruler of all things, the most powerful entity in heaven and on earth, the supreme magistrate of the world. Christ is also the end of all things, and he uses the Greek term telos, which means more than just end. 
I love this word. This word is very interesting. It means he is the definite point, goal, conclusion, or purpose. That's what telos means. Christ is the very goal or purpose of all creation. He is the telos. He is a very bright morning star that the church looks forward to in this dark world as we wait for the light of the kingdom to shine on us. He came to be the cornerstone of the church and is the one and same stumbling block or rock of offense to unbelievers. For as Peter declares in 1 Peter 2 verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So concerning this obedience and disobedience to God's word, we are also warned in verses 18 through 19. We're almost done with the warnings. Uh, We are warned to handle God's word carefully. Carefully. The specific command is for the words of revelation to be handled carefully, neither to add to or take away from it. And that is certainly the approach we must take considering the intrinsic difficulty of eschatology. Right? When it comes to all those interpretations, we have to handle God's word carefully, not to add to it or take away from it. Interpreting revelation must be done with great care and attention, and we must remember that it's Scripture that interprets Scripture when we study it. Pulling out hokey interpretations and theories that have no grounding in the harmony of Scripture is unwise. Predicting Jesus' return by interpreting revelation by current events is unwise. Just before his ascension in Acts 1, the disciples asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 2,000 years ago. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So Jesus gives us another clear reminder that our business is not about when he will return, but what to do as we wait for his return, which will unfold when we get to verse 17. The key thing here is that God's word is sacred. Handle revelation carefully, and as a general rule, handle all of Scripture carefully. It is a consistent command in Scripture, even as early as Deuteronomy 4.2, where Moses says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commands, commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. All of Scripture must be handled very carefully. Very carefully. In fact, the first attack by the devil depicted in Genesis 3 was an attack on God's word. God had commanded Adam in Genesis 2, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But Satan's attack was against the validity, truthfulness, and trustworthiness of the word of God. How did he tempt Eve? He said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The ancient serpent in the beginning, just like so many, even in the church today, casts a shadow of doubt on God's word. Eve's shortcoming during this whole affair was that she allowed the doubt of God's word to cloud her trust of it. She too added to and took away from God's word in order to justify her own sinful desires. And so to Adam who is the source of all of this. Taking away from God's word and adding to it, Eve made grave errors that led to grievous sin. She simply stated that God allowed them to eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. That takes away God's generosity to eat from every tree of the garden, except that one outlier. She further takes away from God's word by tweaking God's warning. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
There is an absolute certainty of the deathly consequences for disobedience, which is why we are both spiritually dead apart from Christ and why we physically die today. We see the effects of that curse. God was surely holding to his promise there. But Eve said God's warning was, lest you die, which reduces the warning to the possible consequences of death. Maybe we'll die. That's what God said. Say, lest you die. Furthermore, Eve adds to God's word, which was a restriction of eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge by claiming that God said, neither shall you touch it. That's verse 3 of Genesis 3. Uh, which is an addition akin to the pharisaical additions of rabbinic teachings to God's law that made it unbearable for God's people to obey his commands. They tacked onto it. They hedged his law. By adding to it, Sabbath worship became unbearable to the Israelites of Jesus' day because they couldn't even walk more than two-thirds of a mile on top of all the other sort of restrictions that they had. God said, rest, don't do any work. But they tacked onto it, couldn't light a fire. And they were so callous that they wouldn't even save a person's life, which Jesus rightly exposed. And let that sink into our hearts as well when we think about adding to God's word too. It's just as dangerous as taking away from God's word, cutting away from God's word. In the sin that led to the separation of mankind from the holy presence of God, Adam and Eve hid themselves from him when he came calling them by name. And for all who add to or take away from God's word and commands, particularly revelation and generally of all scripture, there is an eternal loss at stake. There's an eternal loss at stake. To those who add to God's word, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Those who bear the weight of these plagues are those who are not marked by the Holy Spirit in revelation. In other words, the reprobate, the unbelievers, the unrepentant, they're identified with such people. Furthermore, those who take away from God's word, will take, he, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book, verse 19. The significance here of the tree of life and the holy city is that these represent the eternal life of the river that runs through the city. And the very presence of God in the city. There is, uh, and verse 22 of chapter 21 we hear God says, and I, or John says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So to add to God's word and to take away from God's word is eternally perilous. Losing his presence forever. That's why we need to be careful in handling his word. So to take away from God's word is to lose his gracious, loving, intimate, life-giving presence forever. Now let's turn our attention to the appeal. Verse 17. But with all these various warnings in mind, there is yet hope for us in this life, couched between promises and blessings for us to take a hold of, and padded between strict warnings for faithfulness that seem to convict us to the core, is a blessing or a blessed hope for all the world. In verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This call to come is not directed at Jesus. Yet, if we examine the structure of this verse carefully, we must not get ahead of ourselves just yet. The Spirit and the Bride will beckon Jesus to come in verse 20. But here the call to come is for the world, the thirsty, and those who desire to come to take the water of life without price. 
This is where that call is directed, and this is the central focus of our message. This is why we send missionaries out into the world, to call those to come who are thirsty to drink from the well of life. So first, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of the Father, it is the Holy Spirit that calls on the weary of the world to come. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John's Gospel 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter or cannot see the kingdom of God. Cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, it is only by the work of the Holy Spirit to call upon our hearts and give us the uh, hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone that we can enter the kingdom of God, this holy city. The Holy Spirit must regenerate our dead, lifeless hearts before we can have justifying faith. Regeneration precedes faith. Many in the world today believe we're all basically good, right? Others believe we are deathly sick, but we have enough life in us to take the medicine of faith to be made alive again. But that is not the consistent teaching of Scripture. Because of original sin, we are totally depraved. Adam's sin left us all spiritually dead. David's David rends his heart in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul picks up on this in Colossians 2, verse 12 through 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So it is God who brings us to life from death. For apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, we are dead in our trespasses. We cannot take that medicine of faith. All we can do is rot in that bed. We are so dead in and of ourselves that we are the dry, sun-bleached bones in the valley that Ezekiel was commanded to preach to. It says in Ezekiel 37, verse 10, So I prophesied, and he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that we all need in our dead hearts to be made alive even now in Christ. And the Spirit invites us to come and drink from the living waters freely. The church, too, invites the thirsty to come and be satisfied in Christ alone. The bride in Revelation is the wife of the Lamb. That is, the church adorned in the white robes of Christ's righteousness. And indeed, the very holy city of New Jerusalem, I, uh, that is the bride. I remember four years ago when my wife and I were planning our wedding, how excited we are to tell everyone we loved and cared about that we were going to be married. And as stressful as creating a guest list uh, is, uh, it is still exciting to reach out to those we love and to join us in celebrating our union before God. This is the reflective call of the bride of Christ to all the world. We desire for all to come to Christ and celebrate, even participate in our forthcoming union with the bridegroom. The spirit of the bridegroom and the bride call to the thirsty, come. Recall Jesus' words in Matthew 11, verse 27 through 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. The church is called to bear witness to this message to the weary world. Earlier, we examined the events uh, just before Jesus' ascension in Acts 1, when the disciples asked, Lord, when will you restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus tells them, you don't, this is not for you to know. It's not your business. And though it is not our business to know when Christ will return in glory, he gives us an agenda to be accomplished preceding the consummation of the kingdom. 
Namely, he goes on in Acts 1 to say, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the mission of the church. That's what we're here for. This is the Great Commission. This is why the church is still on this earth and Christ has not returned yet, to go bring that message to the world. The church remains here to be witnesses in this fallen world. This is why we send our missionaries again to across seas, to South Africa and other places. It is not merely to build a well or supply some need, although there is a need for the compassion there for physical needs. No, the core objective is to bring them to the living well, the water from the well of life. That's our core objective. And I thank you guys for your faithful ministry there because that seems to be so central to your mission. You're faithful to that mission. Thank you. And that's a mission that we all should be bearing, whether we go overseas or we do it here and now. Uh, There's a church in Lansing called Living Word, and uh, above the exit to their church, the doors to the outside, uh, when they leave the sanctuary, it says, you are now entering your mission field. And how true is that? There are people dying all around us, and it is our call to bring that message of hope to them. Christ has made us alive by his Spirit. So, to believe in Jesus is to come and drink that water of life without price. Grace, and by it faith, is a free gift that we don't earn and don't deserve. We deserve and have earned God's just judgment and eternal death. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus gives the thirsty, water, the thirsty water from the spring of life freely. He says in John's Gospel, chapter 7, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This wells up to new life now. Obedience and faithfulness will lead to eternal life when he returns to resurrect us and consummate his kingdom. Uh, Matthew Henry, famous uh, theologian and commentator on the Bible, sums it verse 17, powerfully, by saying the Spirit, by the sacred word, and by convictions and influence in the sinner's conscience, says, come to Christ for salvation. And the bride, or the whole church on earth and in heaven, says, come and share our happiness. Lest any should hesitate, it is added, let whosoever will or is willing come and take the water of life freely. Let us not hold this blessed hope to ourselves, but let us proclaim it from the mountaintops. Come, drink, you who are thirsty. You're drinking from the little Calumet River. The Great Lakes are right over there. Largest freshwater bodies in the world. Don't drink that sewage. Come and drink from the water of life, and you'll never thirst again. Now is the day of salvation. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he came preaching the gospel of God. He came saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The same Greek word for time is used here at the end of Revelation. The chirotic moment of Jesus' coming into history had come 2,000 years ago to do the work of preaching the gospel, dying for sins, and being raised for our justification. And as at, the t- at that time, Christ put all the world to a crisis moment which means a judgment. We are all put at this crisis moment. R.C. Sproul comments in his Mark commentary, when the kingdom broke through and the Messiah appeared, it brought the most profound crisis humanity ever faced. 
The crisis was this. Those who received him would receive eternal life. Those who did not would pass into God's judgment. Since Jesus' ascension, the whole world is put to this crisis, and we must choose now to receive or reject Christ. And remember, that is a living faith, not a dead faith. A faith that is characterized by obedience to God's commands. Some say that God is slow in his coming. 2 Peter 3, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, any of his people should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All of God's people, all the saints should reach repentance. That's why we're still here to bring that message of the gospel to the elect who have not yet heard. There is still time to repent. The invitation to lost sinners still is extended. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. But when our Lord appears again, it will be with judgment for those who reject him and salvation for those who receive him. Both the Spirit and the Bride are compassionately concerned to call all the thirsty to come and take the water of life without price before the kairos of Christ's return is throttled out of the final pages of history and his purposes are fulfilled. Then he will separate the sheep from the goats. There are wheats and there's weeds even in this congregation here today who need to hear the message of the gospel. Let us not weary in the message of the gospel. Let us not weary in hearing this truth. I know I'm getting a little long in the tooth with this message, but let us not weary of hearing the word of God. Indeed, at the end of Revelation, we can then say with John and the Spirit and the Bride, Amen, come Lord Jesus, for his people thirst for him always and are satisfied in him always, yet we remain in this arid world with water that does not satisfy. But during his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Though he is with us in spirit now as he promised, we who belong to Christ continue to thirst for his full, personal, and glorious presence. This is why Matthew Henry charges us to let us earnestly thirst after greater measurements or measures of the gracious influences of the blessed Jesus in our souls and his glorious presence with us till glory have made perfect his grace toward us. In other words, let us eagerly grow in the knowledge of Christ and be continually sanctified until his full presence completely satisfies us with his perfected and completed grace and salvation. On that day, we will worship in the unveiled presence of the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, or we will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, I would like to apply this to some degree, a little more practically. So how shall we then live in light of the promises of these blessings? We must be ready for his return. Wayne Grudem comments in his systematic theology that being ready is faithfully obeying him in the present, actively engaged in whatever work he has called us to. Will the Father say to us, well done, good and faithful servant? We don't know when Christ will return, but we are called to be watchful looking for the bright morning star, the bright morning star to shine on this dark world as the dawn is coming quickly. Night is almost past. Let us be awake and watchful. 
Something else to consider from Wayne Grudem is that how we view and long for Jesus' return can actually indicate, to some degree, our spiritual conditions. Do we see the world as God does in bondage to sin and rebellion? Do we long for him to set all things right again? Or, as Grudem notes, the more we are getting caught up in enjoying the good things of this life and the more we neglect genuine fellowship with each other and with Christ and our personal relationship with Christ, the less we will long for his return. We cannot be so comfortable in this world that we grow to love it more than the one who made it. The world is destined for fire and we must store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Not on this earth will moth and rust destroy. In light of the many serious warnings, we must worship with fidelity to the God, the creator alone, and guard his word carefully. God takes worship seriously and we all worship someone or something, even if it's not the Alpha and the Omega. Tim Keller notes in his study of Romans 1 through 7, there has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes and which we look to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is, we worship it, and so we serve it. It becomes our bottom line, the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything we do. So I ask us to earnestly examine our own hearts today and this week, Examine our own hearts for idols that we may be worshiping. What can we not live without or center our identity around? Is our God our bellies worshiping good food? Guilty. Do we worship our favorite sports teams? Do we find our deepest hopes resting in politicians, the Constitution, government, government help, or the American dream? Is that what we place our hopes and dreams upon? Is our bottom line our morality checklists? Do we bow down to the almighty television and daily worship? Or our cell phones? Information. Do we worship the approval of others? Do we serve our own successes? Can we not live without work? Guilty again. We must honestly examine our own hearts, hear the rebuke of the angel. You must not do that. Worship God and repent. We are also warned not to tamper with God's word. It is eternally perilous to tamper with his word. The mishandling of his word thrusts the entire human race into spiritual and physical death. John MacArthur said, one of the defining characteristics of believers is that they recognize the authority of Christ and obey his word. Christ is our king and we must take his promises, commands, and warnings very seriously and carefully. We must avoid seeking hokey interpretations of revelation and examine the text thoughtfully and carefully. And in general, we must be careful in our reading and studying of Scripture. We must read and study Scripture. That's a command. Meditate on his word day and night. Take that seriously. God, however, sees the heart, and Warren Wearsby comments that he can separate ignorance from impudence and immaturity from rebellion in this case. So even so, without excuse, we must be careful not to be charged with contempt for the truthfulness of God's word or rebellion against his commandments and seek with all our hearts to be wise and mature in how we handle scripture. In all, we must marvel at God's glory as he has revealed himself in his word, singing with all creation to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen? 
couple more points, I promise. In Noah's day, he was a herald of righteousness with seven others when God brought a flood upon the whole world of ungodliness or the world of the ungodly. God announced his judgment on the corrupted world in Noah's day and commanded Noah to build an ark, which took a hundred years. Imagine that. That is a hundred years of preaching. At least we're not here for a hundred years, okay? God is terribly angry with sin, is what he would say. And is going, he is going to justly destroy all life on earth. But if you get on the ark with me and my family, you will be spared. He preached that for a hundred years. God was patient in his mercy and gave the hearers of Noah's generation the preaching every moment up until the rain started before he closed the door of the ark himself. Christ is that door, and Christ is that ark. But for a hundred years, Noah's preaching was ignored. God's mercy was reviled. Let that not be so of us. Let us be warned that Christ is coming soon without delay, and he is bringing his recompense with him to repay each one what he has done. The offer of mercy is here now. We have time to repent and believe now. If you have not done so, we have time now. If we reject the cornerstone, we will restore up for ourselves wrath on the day of his visitation. Let us follow the example of Noah. Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed in an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The dawn of the bright morning star is approaching, and the light of Christ will expose all works of unrighteousness. So let us walk in true, obedient faith while the free gift of salvation is extended to us now. Now some of you have already accepted that and received Christ and might be thinking, well, what's the point of hearing that message again? I have already accepted Christ. There's something for us here too. Moreover, let us be heralds of righteousness to this fallen world, motivated to obey God's word and share his invitation to the lost world. Our anticipation of Jesus' return should well up a pure attitude of ministry and evangelism to tell God's grace to seek the lost ones. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Jesus had compassion on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he has commissioned us to be those shepherds now. Think of the friends and extended family and neighbors that Noah knew and who refused to listen to his message of God's justice and mercy. Every single one of them were drowned in the flood. That breaks my heart. Just at the mere thought of that. And it invigorates me to be a herald of the gospel to my friends, my family, my neighbors. And I do not wish that any one of you be consumed in the flames of God's just wrath but that all should enjoy the eternal bliss of salvation in Christ. We must think of our neighbors, warning them of the wrath to come and the offer of salvation in Christ alone. Is the proclamation of truth not such a deep love as to bring a sinner back into the sheepfold? Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In addition to the promise of salvation in the gospel, we must lay hold of God's promise to return more firmly because it is part and parcel of the gospel. 
at the foundation of the gospel, we acknowledge we are fallen in nature, cursed by sin and death. The power of the gospel is Christ dealing with sin and death and in the resurrection. But the hope of the gospel, the hope of the gospel is while we are suffering sin and death, Christ will come again to make all things new. When we face trials of all kinds, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, diseases, death, it is encouraging to remember that God is on his throne, faithful and true to all his promises. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ has been offered once to bear sins for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Christ has already dealt with sin at the cross and in his resurrection. Now we look forward to his return to vanquish the last enemy of death once and for all. Is that the hope? Isn't that the hope all of our hearts long for? We live in a fallen, dark, sad, and painful world. Moses sings in Psalm 90, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So the longest any of us will have to wait to meet our risen Lord is but a short while. We're mortal, and unless Christ returns in our lifetime, we will meet him when we die, for judgment or for salvation. And in that short while, we suffer because of sin. We get sick with cancer, debilitating diseases, our minds wither, our bodies break down, we get sick, we are easily tired, we're plagued with pain, suffering, and loss. Death separates us from the ones we love and wells up our eyes with aching tears. But we eagerly hope for his return, the return of our loving Savior. His return will not be something to fear if we are led by the Spirit. His return will be filled with joy. Revelation isn't a scary book. It's a book that fills us with joy at the return of our Savior who will make all things new. God himself will dwell with us as our God. We will joyfully anticipate and expect his return because for all the hurt and sorrow in our souls, by his own hand, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Every last one of them. He bottles them up and he will wipe them away. All of us cry sometimes, don't we? All of us suffer pain and loss. But Christ will wipe those tears away when he comes back again. That's what we hope for. We can rejoice at his coming because death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the message of the chiasm that we've looked at in this end of Scripture, end of Revelation. Are these words not a gracious blessing for the saints in the Lord? Are these things not a blessing and a promise that we can hold fast to? Saints in the Lord, if this is your earnest prayer, let us say with John in verse 20, and all the saints of all history in heaven and on earth, let's say it together, 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us continue that prayer. Our Father in heaven, your name is great and greatly to be praised. Glorify your name in all the earth, even as it is now in heaven. May your kingdom come soon. Fulfill your promises and make our joy complete in our union with Christ. Let the bright morning star of Christ shine on this dark world and warm our hearts forever. By your Spirit, set our feet upon a firm foundation that we might not sin against you. Forgive us if we have worshipped falsely or have mishandled your word. Set our hearts aflame for Christ. Encourage the saints to boldly proclaim the gospel to our neighbors who need it. And may you change the hearts of many today. Wake us up that we may stand ready for your return with eager and joyful anticipation. Amen. Lord, come. We long to see you and we look forward to enjoying your refreshing presence forever. For now and always, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen.